Good morning, Sunnyway Church. I'm Meredith. I'm so excited for today, and I'm really happy to be gathering with you online this morning. Welcome to everyone gathering on the Sunday morning live platform and those gathered in watch parties. And hello to those watching or listening later on in the week. I want to give a special welcome to those of you joining us for the very first time. We trust that even online you feel at home here. In order to make your very first visit a little easier, I'm going to run through some information that we share each and every week, and it hopefully will help you, our guests, and everyone else know a little bit about what to expect as we gather and how to engage if you're on the live platform. Now, this platform has many options for you. You can share your information with us. You can update your information. There's also a tab to give, to take next steps, to find previous messages, and to share this message. Uh, you can also request prayer right on the live platform, and one of our hosts will answer you privately in a separate chat. If you're watching or listening to this message later, you can do those things through our website. If you have questions or need assistance or prayer, or you know someone who does, we would love to help you any way that we can. Just please email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. Now, we don't want church to just be an hour or so on a Sunday morning. We really want to be the church all throughout the week. And part of that is moving forward spiritually. So we have resources to help you do just that. They go right along with the message that you're about to hear. And I'm going to point out a few of them. Uh, one is the Monday, Wednesday, Friday devotionals that you can sign up for on the Next Steps page of the website. Those are awesome. And they take you deeper into the message from that Sunday. Uh, we provide wallpapers to remind you of the weekly application question. And we also have a message just for our kids. Our centerwide kids get to learn from the same text that we're about to hear, but with kid-friendly content, of course. If you have kids in your home, we encourage you to talk about that application question together throughout the week. And that's a great way to grow as a family. All those resources that I just mentioned and much more are available on our website. This past Friday, we had our first circle of the fall cycle. There are six more Fridays and it's not too late to sign up if you would like to do that. If you are listening to this and you don't know what circles are or you want more information, check out the Next Steps page of the website and there's a circles tab right there with info and a way to join right on the website. Uh, this cycle is gonna be just a little bit different than past cycles. We're gonna start out in the same Zoom call and then break out into separate rooms, like breakout rooms in Zoom. Uh, and we'll discuss the application question that way. And our plan, depending on a meeting place, being a mobile church, which is super fun right now, uh, is to gather for two of those uh, circles in person. And if we can get that together, those in-person details will be announced at a later date. Uh, just so you know, our kids also have a circle available at the same time as the adults, and our student circles will meet on Sunday nights. That first one is gonna be tonight. We're really excited to keep connecting in this way uh, through circles, so we wanna encourage you to sign up. Now, here's what to expect today. George will be reading the scripture text for us, Claude will be communicating from the Bible, and then I'll wrap things up at the end with some ways to respond in worship. Immediately after the message, you can join us live on Instagram or Facebook as a way to respond through song. And here's George with the text for today. Hi guys, my name is George and I'll be reading today's scripture, Mark 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. 
And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Good morning and welcome to Centerway Church. My name is Claude. My wife Meredith and I are the lead pastors here and uh, super excited that you have the opportunity to be with us this morning as we continue in our series called Questions and Answer. Uh, it's a journey through uh, the beginning part of the Gospel of Mark. And as you just heard, we're jumping into the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This morning's message is entitled specifically Disruptive. So Questions and Answer Disruptive. Have you ever um, been in a, a crowded room or in a situation maybe in school where uh, a question is being asked and you're confident you know the answer and uh, all of a sudden everybody kind of answers at once and one of those big things like, come on, everybody tell us, obviously two plus two is, and then everybody's like four and you're like three, four. You know, have you ever been in a situation where it's clear that everybody knows something and you thought you did, but then it turns out that maybe you didn't? I could give countless examples of where I was confident that I knew something only to hear everybody shout out the answer and I was shouting out the wrong one. Uh, there was one time in particular probably the most embarrassing or potentially scarring. Um, I've never been very good uh, in English. Uh, well, I assume I speak the language fairly well, but in, as far as the class in school, whenever it came to like, uh, you know, this is a, a verb, this is an adjective, this is, you know, and you're actually talking about pulling those words out of sentences, like I even now as an adult, with the exception of a noun or an adverb, I'll still get a little bit like... I'm not totally sure, even if I think I'm right. And I think it goes all the way back to this moment. Like it was that scarring. Uh, I was in sixth grade and I remember exactly where I was sitting and my teacher and everything. And we were breaking down this sentence. We were talking about the different parts of the sentence. And all of a sudden the teacher starts to say, you know, what's the noun? And so we all shout it out and I'm like, got it. You know? And then he's like, what's the verb? And everybody kind of shouts it out. And I'm like, I think I said the wrong one. And he's like, what? what's the adverb? And I'm like, wait, what's going on? He's like, which one's the adjective? And I'm like, I know nothing. I'm an idiot. I'm looking around. They're all shouting the things in unison. I'm looking at the sentence. I'm like, I I'm getting this wrong. I'm getting it wrong. I remember being kind of like panicked or whatever. And, uh, and he's like, so who got that right? And of course, you know, I'm like, oh, I put my hand up. Everybody puts their hand up, you know, and he's like, that's awesome. So for those of you with their hands up, we're going to ask about the next sentence. And Mr. Valdez, why don't you point out all the different parts of the, of this sentence. And I was like, uh, no, that's okay. And he's like, no, you can come on up and you can tell us which one. And I was like, no, that's all right. And he's like, well, it's just for the people that had their hands up. You had your hands up, right? And I was like, well, 
um, and immediately I just start questioning everything. I'm looking at this sentence. I think I might be right, but I'm not confident. I get nervous. I'm like, no, that's okay. Let someone else go. I feel like I answer, you know, all the time. And so I'm literally trying to come up with reasons to get out of it. And he's like, well, why don't you at least tell us, you know, what the the adjective is in this sentence? And so I was like, well, I'll tell you the noun. And so I tell him the noun. He's like, yeah, that's right. Can you tell us the adjective? And I'm like, oh, I'm not exactly sure. And so I just start literally questioning everything. And he must have just had mercy on my soul because he's like, oh, okay, well, why don't you go ahead and sit down? Well, I sat down. I was embarrassed and flustered and I'm just sitting there thinking about every part of the English language and questioning everything I knew about speech. And uh, the next question came up and he said, who wants to break apart this sentence? And I just kept my hands down and I was literally questioning everything. The fact is we question things about the world externally and we question things about ourselves all the time. We question what it is that we know for fact and what it is that we think we know and all of that just kind of gets garbled up. And the reason why is because sometimes it's okay to question things. Like it's not always bad. And I think questioning sometimes has a bad or negative connotation. And I think there's with good reason. The question I want us to ask and consider as we go into this message today is this, why do we question things? So if we all do it, why? Why do we question things? I want to submit to you that we as humans question things for really one reason. One reason. And that's when we think we may be wrong about something. Now, bear with me because you might have some objections and I'm going to clarify what it is I'm actually talking about. So just bear with me that maybe that makes sense. That the one reason why we question things is because we think we might be wrong about something. Now, think about it. Like I said, we all question things, but hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying questioning people, right? I'm not talking about questioning someone or questioning their motives. No, when we do that, it's because we think we're right about something. And so because we think we're right, we're questioning that person, right? And that is destructive, ultimately. It can damage relationships. Even if we are right, it can be hurtful. So I don't mean questioning in that sense. I'm talking about situationally, questioning things situationally. When we think of something we know and all of a sudden there's new information, it causes us to question things internally. All of a sudden we're questioning, am I right? Do I not have all the information? Like kind of young Claude, sixth grade Claude, sitting in that classroom, everybody's shouting it out and you realize they're shouting out one thing and you're shouting out something different. Wait a second, am I wrong? questioning things. Why? Because I think I might be wrong. So suddenly when we, when we think that we know something for sure is suddenly turned completely upside down, something happens within us. It's disruptive. It makes us uneasy. Some of you are actually getting stressed out just hearing me talk about it. The idea of being in a crowded room and being the only one shouting out something different. Like the idea of thinking you're right and realizing you're wrong is disruptive, it's uneasing, it takes us off balance. If we think about it though, if the goal is to to really see things accurately, if it's to have complete clarity about something or about a situation, then this type of disruption is actually a gift. 
It's actually a gift. If, if I want to learn the English language and all the parts of a sentence, then, then I need that disruption in my life to realize that what I thought was correct is actually not correct. If we want an answer for the questions we ask, we must be prepared for disruptions. Disruptions in how we think and what we think we know. Let me say that one more time because nobody likes being disrupted in what they think they know. If we want an answer to the questions we ask, we must be prepared for disruptions in how we think and what we think we know. And this is exactly what this morning's text wrestles with on several levels. Let's jump in at verse 2. Verse 2 says this. It says, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room. So we find them back at uh, Simon's home. Jesus is in Simon's home. And so they're crowding around. And it, it goes on. It says, Not even at the door. And he, meaning Jesus, was preaching the word to them. So here we are again at Simon's house, and there's so many people crowded around that the doorway is actually full of people and it's spilling out into the street. It's completely jam-packed. And Jesus is taking this opportunity to preach. He's taking the opportunity to teach. So once again, we see Jesus increasing the priority of the message he has come to share. There's a, in the midst of this teaching going on, as there's people gathered around, the story goes on to say that there's four men that come carrying a paralytic and uh, some form of a, of a stretcher or a bed in some way that they're carrying him and they try to get in proximity to Jesus because they want a miracle for their friend or at the very least their acquaintance. And they can't quite get in. And so the way uh, buildings were built back then is there would be access to the roof outside of the building. And so they go to that access point and they carry this person up onto the roof. And the, the roofs were beams and sometimes they had dirt laid over them and then tiles and different types of construction. But it was a flat roof. And so we see this group of four men carry this, this gentleman up to the top of this roof and they begin to tear apart part of the thatching of this roof. You can only imagine dirt probably is falling through. I'd be totally annoyed if I'm Simon. I'm like, seriously, you know, you're destroying my roof. What are you doing? But they, they tear this apart and they lower this man down before Jesus. And as they lower him down, what they're displaying is this level of desperation, right? This idea that if we can just get him into the presence of Jesus all of his problems will go away. This is the answer for this guy. He's a, he's a paralytic. Now, what you need to understand culturally is that paralytics were, were destined to live lives of poverty. They had to beg for their sustenance. They had um, no opportunity to work or to go in any type of um, furtherance of their life. So it's not like today's society at all. They were actually really looked down upon. And so for this uh, person who's essentially a social outcast, these four people believe they're doing the best thing for him. So healing is his answer. It's everything he needs. If he can get healed, he can work. He can join uh, the social circles he wants to be in. He can go back to synagogue and all the different things. So this is the answer. This man needs a healing. Or so they think. That's what they think. They think they're right, right? 
And so they lower him down. And we pick up at verse 5. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Now, I'm trying to do my best to understand what would be happening in the minds of these four guys. I don't know how far away this dude lived or where exactly he was located. I don't know how heavy he was, but my assumption is even with three other people helping me, carrying a grown man up onto a roof, tearing a roof apart and then lowering him down, I'm probably winded, probably sweating, thinking this is it. We did it. I can't believe it. You know, giving high fives, which are a little bit absurd, but in this situation could be acceptable. I just think you look ridiculous when you, anyway, in either case, you're excited you've lowered this guy down and you're like, he's going to get his healing. Shh, shh, Jesus is going to heal him. Here it comes. Here it comes. And Jesus looks at him and they're like, "Uh." he goes, son, here it is. Get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. What? Seriously? Like, that's it? Like we could have done that out on the street. I could walk by this guy every day of my life and be like, hey, son, Sins forgiven. Like, this had to be a huge letdown, almost like a gut punch. It's anticlimactic. They want this guy to get up and walk, and instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I would kind of be like, hey, thanks for saying that. About that healing thing you were doing the other day, (laughs) could you maybe like, you know, hook me up with not being paralyzed anymore? (laughs) That would be awesome. There's just got to be so many things running through their mind. It kind of sounds familiar, right? Doesn't it sound familiar that that maybe we think we know what God should do to really resolve our situation? Like, no, God, like, intervene. Like, take care of this. I I appreciate, yeah, you love me and all those things, but, but can you just, can you do what I need? Can you get to what it is I think I need in this situation? It's very familiar. We all do this. We diminish the spiritual because we desire something physical. We diminish the spiritual because we desire something physical. But Jesus is making something crystal clear right here. Sin is our greatest enemy. Sin is the root problem. Sin is what separates us from God. And so he looks at this man crippled and he says, your sins are forgiven. I'm going to tend to the most important thing, the biggest issue in your life. You think it's that you're paralyzed, but your problem is eternal. Your problem is the sin issue of your one and only life. You see, the kingdom of God on earth means full restoration of God's creation, both physical and and spiritual. Jesus is meeting the deeper need. He's meeting the deeper need and it's disruptive. It had to be disruptive. It's disruptive on two levels. It had to be disruptive for the paralytic, for these four guys. Like what? Like I thought we had the right answer. The right answer is you heal him. Like that's what you've been doing. That's why we brought him to you. And so they're wrong. They're wrong about what his deepest need is. The second thing that's kind of disruptive is that the scribes question because they think they're right. 
You see, they think they're right about what they know about the law, what they know about a lot of things. And so they begin questioning, as we'll see in a moment, they begin questioning for an entirely different reason. They're questioning because they think they're right. And that's destructive. So we have the the paralytic and the four men and maybe even the crowd that are questioning things, realizing that maybe they're wrong and that's disruptive. And we have the scribes that are questioning because they think they're right and that's destructive. So we look at verses six and seven and we see this. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I'm right. He's wrong. I know the law. He's blaspheming. How dare he? And so they begin to rise up within themselves, questioning in their hearts, it says. We're so much like the scribes, questioning things within our hearts. We think we know so much. We think we know so much. You see, culturally and spiritually, they have an entire system, an entire system and laws of which, like I said, the scribes were experts in. And this sacrificial system was the only way to be forgiven and made right with God. Only God forgives sins. And so they're dealing with this entire system that they understand. And so make no mistake, Jesus is saying in this moment, based on the original Greek, he is saying, by my own authority, this man's sins are forgiven. So he is saying, I'm God. Listen, the scribes are right. They're right. According to what they understand about the law, according to what they perceive is taking place before them, what Jesus is saying is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. And the punishment of blasphemy was death. It's a foreshadowing of what begins to actually take place as the scribes begin to look and say, this dude, he's got to go. They're right. It was complete blasphemy to try to align yourself as God unless, unless he is God, unless he is God. But that would be too disruptive. That would mean that they would be wrong. And so they can't even see what's happening in front of them unless he's God, unless the entire sacrificial system that they are so well versed in was revealing humanity's propensity to be enslaved by sin and the inadequacy of the animal sacrifice pointing to the one that would be fully man and fully God who would know no sin and die the atoning death that sin required so that all of those who repent and believe could be set free. Unless the gospel's being played out right in front of them, they're right if they're missing the gospel, in which case they're entirely wrong. They missed it. They missed it. And if we're not careful, we'll miss it too. We'll miss it too. We will allow, or the question we have to ask is, will we allow God to disrupt what we think we know? Will we allow God to to reorient 
what it is that we think we know. Verses 8 and 9 go on and say this, And immediately, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, I love this. Like, he just looks at this guy and says, I forgive you of your sins. They're thinking things in their heart and mind. And he turns to them and goes, this. He looks right at them in the middle of the crowd and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? <laughs> what? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Huge moment. Jesus turns to the scribes, reading their inner thoughts and says, which is easier? Now, this is as sad as it is funny. Like th this picture that's taking place because they're questioning Jesus's divine authority. As they're literally questioning it within their hearts and minds, according to scripture, Jesus reads their minds and responds. <laughs> if that's not enough to be like, maybe I'm wrong here. <laughs> maybe this guy is God. Like if there was ever a moment to reevaluate and to be disrupted a little bit, this is it. But they miss it. They miss it. It doesn't cause them pause at all. In verse 10 through 11, it says this, literally as he asks them, which is easier? He says, but that you may know that the son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up. I'm sorry, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What? Listen, there's a couple things that happen right here that we can't miss. The first thing is, it seems that Jesus is only physically healing this man to verify the authority of his message. That's it. So, get this. The important healing has already taken place. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And then, because of the questioning in their hearts, he says, just so that you'll know, just so that you'll know that I have the authority to forgive sins, then rise up and walk, and he heals the man. It's showing us the priority of spiritual healing over physical healing. Jesus is saying, listen, these, these miracles and these healings, they take place so that you understand my authority in the sense that the message that I'm preaching must be heard. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. The second thing that we're going to miss if we're not careful here is that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. He says the son of man. He doesn't say the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't declare himself the Messiah. He declares himself the Son of Man. And if you are a scribe, if you understand the Old Testament, declaring yourself Son of Man is a bigger deal than declaring yourself Messiah. And this is why. Messiah in their culture had connotations. It had assumptions. And it had political overtones. And so if, if Jesus would have said, I'm the Messiah, they would have gotten in their mind a picture that was entirely different and contrary to what Jesus' mission actually was. And so he's careful to not be defined by their assumptions of who the Messiah is. Oh my gosh, it's so, 
it's so close to home because that's who we are. We want a Jesus and a Messiah that we can shape, that we can make sense out of, that we can control even. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not going to let you label me the way you perceive the Messiah to come. Jesus didn't fit into their idea of the Messiah. Think about that. Jesus didn't fit into their idea of the Messiah. But, get this, son of man literally means human being. It means human being. And it means more. To the average person in the room, they might have been a little bit confused. Like, the son of man, like this human who's implying that he is also has the authority to forgive sins. So for the disciples and for the average person in the packed into this house, there's some confusion taking place. He's speaking very clearly to the scribes, though. He's making reference to Daniel chapter 7. You see, Daniel chapter 7 refers to one called the Son of Man who will come to establish God's kingdom. It's a prophetic phrase in, the, in chapter 7 where Daniel is talking about the coming Messiah and refers to him as the Son of Man. So what Jesus is saying is based on what you know, what it is you think you know, I'll make it even more clear. I am fully human and I am fully God. I am the one that Daniel spoke of. I've come to establish the kingdom of God. This has to be a huge moment that just is so disruptive in the scribes' hearts and minds. It has to either be a moment where they surrender and declare him Lord, or they become infuriated and say this man must die. We know the end of the story. But do we understand the implications in our own heart? What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus when we say, wait a second, this is too disruptive. Do I want him to fit into my idea of Messiah? What am I going to do with the reality of the offense of the gospel when it reorients the things that I think are good? And yet I've elevated them to to all-encompassing. There's something taking place here. The scribes study and knew the book of Daniel and Jesus is connecting the dots for them. But they think they're right. So they miss it. Listen, we think we know our greatest need, but really we're just focused on our current situation. We're just like this on our current reality. When we focus on our physical situation, we question everything. Why this? Why, God? How dare you? Why that? This is unfair. We declare all these things from a position of believing that we're right about the narrative of our lives. The reality is our biggest problem isn't our relationship. It's not our finances. It's not our job. It's not even our physical well-being. Our biggest issue is sin. Our biggest problem is sin and our need for Jesus because he is the answer to all of our questions. The things that consume us, that are just distractions of the things that really matter. The biggest need of this paralytic wasn't that he could walk again, but that his sin condition would be resolved. Jesus is making it crystal clear. 
verse 12 says, and he rose, the paralytic. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Guy just stands up and walks out. <laughs> what? And they're the scribes and everybody's sitting there. What am I, what am I going to do with this? How do I process who Jesus is and what the implications are? When we truly have an encounter with Jesus and experience the grace of his spiritual healing, then we say things like, I'm forever changed. This is impossible. You know, there's a lot of us that are watching or listening that might say, oh, I've never seen a miracle though. I mean, look, look at this guy. If I was packed into a house and all of a sudden Jesus was like, stand up and be healed, then I'd be like, okay, Jesus is real. Like if I was there, then I would totally surrender to God. And then if, and then if Jesus told me to, you know, to reorient my life or to reconsider things or, or to, to surrender to him, then I would do. I mean, that, that's incredible. But I mean, I've never seen a miracle. But then I'd change my mind if I saw a miracle. We've elevated the physical, but the reality is this. We have tremendous technology right now. And I've shared variations of this before if you've ever been part of, if you're part of Centerway for any amount of time. But we have incredible technology right now. And the fact is, we can take people that have very physical issues, very difficult um, limitations, and with current technology, brilliant doctors, extremely gifted, can do things that were medically impossible just 10 years ago. People that have the inability to, to use arms or legs or whatever, they, they can repair them. It's incredible. But these people that saw this miracle, not too long after, shouted out, crucify him. You see... When it comes to, to physical miracles, what is the lasting implication of that? This man died eventually. Our physical well-being, it's just, it's a window of time that has purpose for mission because it's connected to eternity. We can get all the doctors in the room get all the psychologists and everybody in the room and they can do a lot of things to transform people's physical bodies and their mental states. And I'm a fan of all of that. I'm amazed and appreciative. But only one, only Jesus can transform the heart of a person where all of a sudden someone that was raised without a father figure in their life and, and heaped in, in abuse and all of these things, that in a moment of surrendering to Jesus, suddenly their heart is softened, softened. And they can be gentle and kind. Why? Because they've experienced the gentle and kindness of the Lord. It's only Jesus that transforms the heart of people. There's only, only Jesus can reach in and resolve 
the eternal true issue. There's only one who can take one destined for hell for eternity, forgive them of sins, and suddenly in a moment's notice, their entire past is erased and they're completely forgiven and set free. It's only Jesus that can do that. That's a miracle. If you've prayed a prayer of salvation and surrendered your life, then you have experienced a miracle. You are a miracle. So you can't sit and say, I've never experienced a miracle. If you're a child of the living God, you've experienced a spiritual miracle. You know what I'm talking about when you've had an encounter with God, but we, we minimize that. We go, well, I, I mean, I prayed a prayer, but if I saw someone walk, we elevate the physical over the spiritual. And God is trying to tell us, listen, there's the the greatest need you have is salvation from the sin of your life. And I've come to set you free. And he went and paid that price. He died the death we deserve so that we can walk in the freedom of a spiritual miracle, a spiritual healing. God is performing a miracle in and through your life. Don't minimize it. Don't marginalize it. Walk in that. Walk in the awareness that God loves you so deeply that he laid down his life so that you could be set free. What's incredible is verse 12 says their immediate response. They were all amazed and glorified God. You see, if we really understand what it is that we've experienced and what it is that God has done for us, the only natural response is worship. It's worship. If we understand what's taking place, if we realize the greatest need is our spiritual need and that God has resolved that and he's won the battle, he has had victory over sin and death, then our response to him must be worship. It must be praise. It's the only appropriate response. And so this morning is We conclude and consider what the implications of the text are in our lives. I want to ask you this question. How will I respond in worship throughout the week? I want you to consider that as an application. How will I respond in worship throughout this week? What is it that God is calling you to do? What will worship look like in response to the miracle that God is doing in and through your life? For some of you, The answer is to experience that miracle for yourself, that healing for yourself. And so for for you, if you've never crossed that line of salvation, if you've never surrendered your life to him, it's as easy as doing it in the comfort of wherever you find yourself right now to simply pray a prayer, Lord, I'm a sinner, but you died a death to set me free. I pray you'd forgive me of my sins and be the Lord and leader of my life. If you prayed that prayer, if you'd like to pray that prayer, You can, if you're joining us live, you can click request prayer and it'll be a private chat that you can have with a host. Or if you would like to follow up later, you can go to our next step, next steps page and follow some of the options there to see what your next steps are as you continue in this journey. We want to walk alongside you. And so we encourage you to reach out to us. If you're out there and you've crossed that line of faith before, I want you to consider how will you respond in worship? What does it look like? What does it look like to respond in worship? Maybe Jesus is is asking for your time. Maybe Jesus is asking for you to leverage your talent, for you to leverage your treasure, some aspect of of your life that, that he's been calling you to. And I think so often we put worship into this little box of song 
where we just, well, we sing. And although that is worship, it's only one way in which we worship. And if you've been connected to Centerway, you hear us say similarly all the time. So we're going to respond in song, but I want to challenge you. What does it look like to respond in worship throughout the week as a response to who God is and what he's doing in and through your life? Maybe if you've already committed on a regular basis to, to spend your time with him, to lean in and leverage your talents and, and your treasure, and, and you're doing all of that already, I want to challenge you to consider what it looks like to respond in worship through missional living. Have you, have you offered up the work of your life as a form of worship? Do you do things begrudgingly or is it a form of worship? Do you have a perspective to realize, listen, God is at work and I want to live all of my life as a song to him. It's a form of worship. I want to challenge you to consider and contemplate that as we go throughout this week and you wrestle with this application of how will I respond in worship throughout the week. Let's close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful, so grateful that you choose to speak truth and um, reveal hope and reveal your love to us so that we can be uh, people that carry the gospel truth, that carry hope, that carry love, that we can be an extension of your hands and feet. And so, Lord, we commit to not only worshiping you, but living our lives as worship to you. And so, God, we just declare ourselves available. In your name we pray. Amen. Excited to be with you again next week as we continue in our series, Questions and Answer. Hi again. Thanks for joining us this morning. Our prayer is that the message you just heard is more than a box you checked just to go to church. We encourage you to allow the Word of God to transform you and apply the text to your life all this week. You may be out there in need of a physical healing or emotional or mental or spiritual healing. And like you just heard, our God is able to heal and he made a way through Jesus for that healing. As you pray, one, we would love to pray along with you if you wanna email us any needs that you have. And two, as you pray, remember to seek Jesus over what he can do for you. He is the ultimate pursuit. Now, if you're not sure where to start in responding and worship this week, Maybe begin by thanking him for the miracle of salvation, that eternal healing that is available to us. And I guarantee that will stir up gratefulness in you. I'm excited for all the ways that we can bring our worship to God this week. And one way that we get to do that together right now is through singing. And we're going to do that if you're with us live. If you're watching or listening to the message later, you can find the songs that we're about to sing on Spotify, search Centerway Church, and look for our questions and answer playlist. For those gathered on the online platform, we'll see you live on Facebook or Instagram in just a few minutes.